And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm Dave Devil, professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and editor of Logos, the Journal of Catholic Thought and Culture. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague Liz Kelly, award-winning writer, jazz singer. Uh, I think we think she's maybe a martial artist. We're, we're not sure all of Liz's <laughs> gifts, but the most important one for our purposes is she's the managing editor of Logos. Today, we have a wonderful guest for you, a good friend of mine uh, and a professor at Hillsdale College in Michigan. Brad Berzer is the Russell Amos Kirk professor at Hillsdale College, and he is probably the world's leading authority on the great Russell Kirk, 20th century Catholic thinker. He's an expert on many other things. He has books on Christopher Dawson, uh, on J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Andrew Jackson, and several rock figures that I, I don't know about. Brad is a big fan of progressive rock. Uh, so Brad has many talents. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks, David. Hi, Liz. Thank you both for having me on. It's wonderful. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your journey? You, you, have, a, you have a wonderful story of uh, how you came to be where you are and your own spiritual journey. Maybe you could uh, give us a little bit. Well, I was actually raised a cradle Catholic, and that was uh, very strong on both sides of the family. I more or less left the faith. I had kind of a you know, one of those weird, I, I thought I was very intellectual, but when I was a teenager, I decided <laughs> I was an atheist. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, something only really a teenager could do. But uh, so I left the faith. I still went to mass. Um, in fact, I had to. That was part of being uh, a member of my family. I had to go to mass. I still went, but I I really kind of lost my faith between about the ages of 14 and 20. But I came back to it. Uh, I went to Notre Dame and was kind of shocked that everyone was so religious there, which really (laughs) should not have been a shock given it was a Catholic school. Um, But I was I was a little surprised by that. And one of my closest friends, in fact, uh, he was one of my two closest friends when I was at Notre Dame, a guy by the name of Kevin McCormick, spent hours and hours and hours talking to me about theology and really convincing me of its truth. So um, thanks to Kevin, I came back to the faith right about the time I became a, a sophomore in college. So yeah, I mean, it was a, it, it's been a good journey and uh, I'm glad I am where I'm at. Yeah, you do. You do a lot of American history. I mean, that's your sort of academic specialty, but what's been great and for, our, you know, especially for our purposes is that you've done especially uh, Catholic figures, both American and and more broadly English Catholics, um, how did you get into to Tolkien and Dawson and all of those figures? Well, uh, in a lot of different ways, actually, Dave. So I had come to Tolkien through my older brothers. I'm the youngest of three brothers. And my oldest brother, for his 18th birthday, received the Silmarillion mm. right after it had come out. Yeah. And I, I was very, I was only, um, I was just, I had just turned 10 at that point, And I was really taken with the cover. And I kind of stole the book from my brother and started reading it. I didn't really understand it. 
but I was very taken with the introduction and the singing of the world into creation. Um, so I, I read that over and over again. And to this day, I'm 53. Uh, I still, I can't look, I can't read Genesis without thinking of Tolkien's account of creation. Uh, I think that my own view of Genesis, no matter how many times I might read it or teach it, and we teach it to all of our freshmen here. So I, I have the privilege of doing that every fall, but I still have a very Tolkienian voice in my head <laughs> uh, as I'm thinking about that. And, and uh, I don't think unhealthy, actually. I, think I can I, think of worse people to have in your head. I, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Liz. I, I can, too. Um, so I came to Tolkien early. And uh, when I was writing my dissertation, I got so tired of it. I was writing on American Indians during the American Revolution. Mm. And not that that was a bad topic. I enjoyed the topic. It just, you know, when you're doing your dissertation, you think of almost nothing else. And uh, a friend of mine said, as I was kind of burnt out, well, if you could write about anything at all, who would you write about? And I immediately said Tolkien. And neither of us had any publishing experience, but he promised me that he would do whatever he could to try and get that book published. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, at about age 30, 31, I started working on the Tolkien book. And yeah, my career's just kind of, I mean, it's, it's been great. I've been really blessed uh, that things have gone the way that they have. So from Tolkien, I went to Dawson. Uh, they, of course, were, they went to the same parish, uh, which yeah. is amazing, mm-hmm. and knew each other. And of course, Tolkien relied really heavily on Dawson's academic work and his own academic work. So yeah, just a lot of connections there. So yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah. Those are those are fun memories. So then you you got into Russell Kirk at a certain point. And of course you your your biography of Russell Kirk from University of Kentucky Press won a great many awards. How did you get into Russell Kirk? So I I was a pretty when I when I was in going through my atheist phase, I was also a pretty diehard libertarian. And in mm-hmm. high school for high school debate, we read a lot of economics. So we read a lot of Henry Hazlitt, Milton Friedman, uh, a lot of the Austrian guys and some of the Chicago guys. And I, I was really into the more libertarian aspects of things. But sometime during college, and I don't know exactly when, but I went to an ISI conference or at least a, a meeting that they had. It wasn't one of their personal conferences, but one of their larger ones. And I got a hardback copy of The Conservative Mind. Mm -hmm. And actually, amazingly enough, I mean, this is just, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, I was reading The Conservative Mind when the Berlin Wall fell down my senior year of college. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a lot going on. As I was reading The Conservative Mind, the world was changing pretty dramatically. And it helped me make sense of it. Uh, So I, I just became absolutely enamored of Kirk. Had not really thought of the possibility of, of culture mattering as much as economics and that was a that was an eye-opener for me and then i just started reading and i've never really stopped started reading kirk 1989 and i just kept going i think a lot of people know kirk simply as a political figure they hear you know he wrote the conservative mind but say a little bit give a little bit of a, a background on on kirk's life and history and what he was all about for our listeners who, who may not know much more than he's a kind of 20th century political figure yeah, you know, he, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, his whole life was fascinating. I was born in 1918, so right during World War One. passed away in April of 1994, so very much a 20th century figure, uh, raised in uh, extreme poverty, not just poverty, but extreme poverty in Plymouth, Michigan. Plymouth is now a really nice kind of uh, basically bedroom community for Ann Arbor and for Detroit. But at the time that Russell Kirk was born in 1918, it it had, it was one of those towns that had already seen its glory and was on its way down. 
and he was born on the wrong side of the tracks mm. in a kind of poor town at that point. And yet he grew up in a very intellectual family, a family that just valued books, valued reading, valued traditional morality. And so he grew up with that and ended up getting a, a scholarship to almost any college he wanted to go to, but hadn't even dreamt of leaving Michigan. So he ended up going to Michigan State, but he met some great people there, uh, was in college there from 1936 until 1940, met some some followers of the great humanists, Irving Babbitt, Paul Elmer Moore, and T.S. Eliot. And I think that started his career, uh, ended up going off to, to serve in World War II. Yeah, very interesting when he was drafted, he went out and bought the collected works of Plato and of the Stoics so that he could read them while he was doing military service, military duty. And, um, you know, that that's Kirk. I, only Kirk would buy the complete works of the Stoics and then go off to war. So uh, it fits his personality. In 1953, he published his dissertation. It was called The Conservative Mind. And it was one of those books that changed the entire political, really the whole political gamut in the 1950s. It was everywhere in the 1950s. Huge influence. So, so great guy. Yeah. So, he, you know, you described his influences as humanists. And in your piece for us in Logos, you described him as a kind of purveyor of Christian humanism. What a lot of people hear that and they think humanism is it secular humanism, but Christian mm, humanism? Sure. How how would you how would you define that? Well, at its most fundamental level, Christian humanism is really just about a Christian who likes the humanities or a humanist who happens to be a Christian. So it, it's a combination, of course, of the liberal arts with Christian theology. But it does, when you start looking at its implications, it does have a huge well. Let's say that it's deeply rooted in the incarnation and the possibility of incarnate things. So what happens when the word becomes flesh? What does that mean? Not just for Christ, but for everybody. And so when we start thinking about some of the great figures in the liberal arts, when we're thinking about a Plato or an Aristotle or a Cicero or a Livy or a Tacitus, whomever it may be, we start thinking in terms of now, what what is this incarnation here? Not just Jesus, but what does it mean uh, that Cicero was a soul wrapped in a body? Uh, what does it mean that they were one? And and how do we think about that for ourselves? And for Kirk, his Christian humanism really did kind of look at the dignity of every human person being made in the image of Christ, but also as an incarnate being, as an incarnate soul. How do we understand that which is eternal versus that which is immediate? or tangible. So those are the kinds of things, those are the kinds of questions that he was bringing to his own humanism. Whereas if you look at people like Irving Babbitt, who was a professor at Harvard, or Paul Elmer Moore, who was a professor at Princeton, when you look at their humanism, it tended to be a little bit more secular. I wouldn't call it secular humanism <laughs> in the way that we think of the humanist American Humanist Society today. Uh, it still had a religious component to it. But its religion was really broad. So someone like Irving Babbitt gave as much credence to the Buddha as he did to Jesus, as he did to Aristotle, as he did to Cicero. So they, they were kind of all equal figures in his mind, whereas the Christian humanist would obviously privilege Christianity and all of that. Um, I just want to read the definition that you included in your article, uh, Kirk's definition of Christian a Christian humanist, 
Um, and I think I made the comment, you know, if this doesn't want to make you read, Kurt, you're probably dead. <laughs> I, I loved your comment. Yeah. I cracked up when I read that. <laughs> he says, a truly humane man is a person who knows we were not born yesterday. He is familiar with many of the great books and the great men of the past and with the best in the thought of his own generation. He has received a training of mind and character that chastens and ennobles and emancipates. He is a man genuinely free, but free only because he obeys the ancient laws, the norms, which govern human nature. He is competent to be a leader, whether in his own little circle or on a national scale, a leader in thought and taste and politics, because he has served an apprenticeship to the priests and the prophets and the philosophers of the generations that have preceded us in our civilization. He knows what it is to be a man, to be truly and fully human. He knows what things a man is forbidden to do, and he knows his rights and his corresponding duties. He knows what to do with his leisure. He knows the purpose of his work. That's just so beautiful. And it is. And you read that beautifully, Liz. That is a great quote. <laughs> you know, and I just in in our current uh tumult <laughs> ab sure. about wanting, you know, the great reset and all this sort of thing, there seems to be this kind of sweeping rejection of everything that has come before. We are throwing out the baby, the bathwater, the bath, the bathroom. We're just going to toss it all, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think to sort of revisit Kirk right now is really apropos. Uh, it's a poignant time for him because of his respect for all that has come before him uh, and his integration of the wisdom that has come before him. Um, I would think that that would be really attractive to your students, especially. You know, it's interesting, Liz, uh, and thanks for that. I mean, I love the way you put that. I, everything, and one of the, the best things I found in studying Kirk, so I was originally attracted to him because of his words, exactly what you just read. You know, that's, those are the kinds of things that Kirk came out with all the time in his writings. And you see how generous he is. Mm -hmm. I'm so gracious, um, so much gratitude not only to his neighbor, but to his grandfather and his grandmother and to his great grandparents and to all those who came before it. And what I found in studying him, and I, I thought for me, the most interesting aspect of the book that I got to write about Kirk was how he treated people like that, whether his children or his students or his friends or his neighbors, he really treated everybody that way. So it's not just kind of nice academic language he really did have that mm. deeply incarnational sense of recognizing another person as made in the image of Christ and treating them that way. Um, it, it, his life was just I mean, to the point of almost absurdity. Mm. Uh, his life was so ruled by his charity mm. to other people. Uh, we put him in financial problems, actually. I mean, he, he suffered in a good way, but there's no doubt that that it caused problems for his family and for him that he treated people to such a charitable extent. Mm. It's interesting because you talk about his gratitude, uh, you know, for those who came before. We're all standing on the shoulders of, 
right. of, of giants. But, um, and it strikes me that you can't have gratitude and rage in the same mm-hmm. operating in the same person at the same time. And, and I wonder, I'm just thinking of this now, you know, just we're, we're at kind of the epicenter of some of the riots and things here in Minneapolis and St. Paul and of the last year and um, how gratitude and rage can't coexist. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that in, in, a light, in a light sort of way, but I wonder if no, of some not. of the healing for our nation isn't rooted in precisely gratitude for what has come before, even the difficult things that have come before because it's made us who we are. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I would like to make t-shirts ab- about, you know, <laughs> Kirk's passage here, but that would be a little long for a t-shirt. Maybe a cape. <laughs> I'll put it on a cape. A cape. There you a go. Cape on the back of the cape. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. yes. That would be very good. Well, I, you I'm know, an idea man. It it is interesting, Liz, because I I wonder if Kirk's response to that, you know, I mean, obviously he's been gone since 1994, so he's missed a, a huge part of, of what's happened in our own culture and in our political history. But I wonder if his answer would would be something that in between gratitude and rage would be justice, maybe mm-hmm, nice. that there would be. Right. I mean, I wonder if right. that he would approach it that way. Yeah. That we need to ask first questions, first get back to first principles about what justice is and how would we think about all of this. I mean, certainly in the 60s, he was incredibly sympathetic to the civil rights movement Mm. and people like Malcolm X uh, and others. But, you know, that he he didn't appreciate the radicalism, but he appreciated the justice Mm -hmm. of what was going on. That's well said. Well said. So maybe the same kind of thing would happen today. In one of the classic essays that uh, you introduced in Logos, The Dissolution of Liberalism, Kirk talks about the fact that our, our problems seem to stem from uh, not from being too liberal. We're not liberal enough, but what he calls a kind of myth of liberalism that he says is based on a distortion of free will. Uh, that seems connected to this sort of <laughs> what we need to be aiming for is justice, not will. Do you think that's, that's an element of it? Yeah, you know, he was really good at that. And it, it's something that I think we've really lost. And I don't mean at UST or else, you know, other colleges like that or Hillsdale, but in academia and in culture at large, we have lost this ability to believe in free will. Uh, everything's determinate in mm-hmm. some way or another. And, and we went for so long where we had the kind of Marxian notion or the utilitarian notion that everything was determined by economics, or we had the Darwinian notion that everything was determined by biology, or the Freudian notion that everything was determined by psychology. But but we're not that much different. We do the same thing with race, class, and gender, yeah. uh, where we think everything is determined by that. And of course, all of these things matter. Right? Economics matter. Biology matters. Mm-hmm. Psychology matters. Race, class, and gender matter. There's no question about that. But when they start becoming the entire picture we really are losing, I think, a lot about the dignity of who and what we are as people. And, and you know, as Liz said, I think it, if you really do believe that you have no free will, why not rage? I mean, this is, you know, yeah. why not? You have mm-hmm. nothing to lose um, at all. But I think when you start realizing that maybe through discussion, through the idea of having discourse, you know, because we can convince people of what is right at that point, then you really do move past rage and start moving towards reconciliation. But that's a hard thing to do. And there is no reconciliation unless 
you believe that people can actually make choices. Mm-hmm. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies movement in higher education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits, Catholic intellectual exploration, or career preparation. Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Kirk focused on that. I mean, you know, we talk about we have this kind of these these myths, these bad myths of liberalism, and they often involve this sort of determinism. But but Kirk thought that that myth and imagination were essential. Uh, and he focused on, you know, oddly enough, perhaps ghost stories, the Gothic. Um, yeah. I mean, what 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 was that? Was that an attempt to sort of be, you know, be like Flannery O'Connor and sort of shock people into realizing that they that they have souls or that they're ghosts or or what? How does that connect to his Christian humanism? Well, it, that's a great question, David. And Kirk is quirky. I mean, that I think there's no question about that. You know, just uh, Liz, your comment about the cape. I mean, one of the things that <laughs> Kirk loved to do when he was in Hillsdale. Because um, he taught here for a while, he, he would come on weekdays and teach and then go back on weekends to Macosta. But he loved walking from the college campus downtown with his big, he had a Count Dracula cape <laughs> that he would wear. <laughs> and he had a huge sword stick. He had an actual cane with a sword in it. Oh, um, I mean, he was a character yeah. and oh, he beautiful. loved doing things like that. I mean, he just, he loved shocking people. And he loved delighting people. It was it was one of his great joys. So his ghost stories and his focus on imagination actually stem from his kind of legitimate sense of exploring the unusual aspects of the human person in one way or another. But David, yeah, in his he wrote uh, over twenty short stories. They were award winning. Mm-hmm. He was published in all the big science fiction magazines of his days, uh, fantasy and science fiction, others as well. Uh, his his first novel, Old House of Fear, sold uh, went through seventeen different yeah. editions and sold well over a million copies. It sold more than all of his other books combined. Wow! You know Stephen King has credited him. Uh, it, it's you know, that's that's not what most people think of when they right. think of Kurt. Sure. They they think yeah. the conservative mind, or mm-hmm. yeah, they might think Barry Goldwater if they know a little <laughs> bit more about Kurt, but they don't think Stephen King. <laughs> you know, and I think that's great that Kirk had those sides to him. But yeah, he he was. Uh, I mean, I, I would go so far, David, as to say he almost had a myst uh, a mystical sense about the power of imagination and mythology, because like Plato and like Cicero and like C.S. Lewis, he believed that the human person knows things through three ways: we know it through our mind, we know it through our passions. But we also know it through our soul, through our imagination, the ability to imagine another person being in our shoes or us being in their shoes. So he had this very, very idealized vision of what the imagination was. 
and it was deeply rooted in his understanding of the incarnation. Uh, if, if Jesus is the word made incarnate, we are little words. Uh, in some way, we're reflections of that. And that image that we have is, is just critical to understanding ourselves, but to understanding one another as well. And that this is where, you know, not to get too cheesy about this, but this is where I think Kirk can get around things like race, class, and gender, because he's much more concerned with the essence of the human person yes. than with the accidents of the yes. human person. Yes. And, and we may say at, at some point to a fault, mm. but I think there's also a great virtue in that, that he looked at someone as another soul, mm-hmm. that <laughs> at some level, that's beautiful. Did you get to know him a little bit before his death, Brad? Dave, I never did. Yeah. I never met him. Yeah. Uh, I when I when I read the conservative mind, I wrote him a long libertarian response telling him why I thought he was wrong. Oh, I love <laughs> and it. And I, I never <laughs> I never sent it. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't. Oh. But I have a feeling he would have been really gracious about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, I had you know I basically yeah. I, I argued that he didn't understand free will well enough. <laughs> right. Well, that's the big only, question, only, right? Only a 21-year-old yeah. can do that. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you've described him in your book as kind of Augustinian. And so, uh, you right. know, I mean, you know, Augustine, of course, his, one of his big questions was understanding the will properly. Would you say that was sort of the, the dominant sort of theological influence on him? He, he converted in 1964, right, to the, right, to the Catholic faith, yeah? Yeah, good memory, Dave. He, um, so... He was actually raised as a spiritualist. His, mm. uh, I mean, I mean, they they call seances, themselves right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and levitations and mm-hmm. uh, really creepy stuff, uh, to my way of thinking. But uh, his his grandmother and his his mother were basically witches. Mm. Uh, oh, wow! And did all kinds of things with you know talking with the dead and so forth. He rejected that and then became a Stoic. And I think his religion for a very long time was kind of an Augustinian stoicism. Mm. He always liked Augustine. I mean, uh, from an early age, he liked Augustine. Even when he was in his more atheistic phase, he liked Augustine. I think he liked Augustine's philosophy. He liked the, the story of Augustine. He liked who he was. So he always had that side to him. But he started taking instruction in the Catholic Church from a Jesuit in 1952 and 53, a guy by the name of Hugh O'Neill at the University of Detroit. And really liked it, but for whatever reason, didn't go through with it. Kind of maintained a love of Catholicism until he met Annette, who was much younger than he was. She's uh, about 24 years younger than he, and uh, but she was a devout Catholic. And so if they were going to have any kind of future, he would have to convert. And so he does convert in August of 1964 and takes the name Augustine. So he becomes Russell Amos Augustine Kirk at that point. Uh, when he takes that, when he becomes Catholic. But it is interesting. Uh, his theology, even though it changes in terms of practice, there's definitely a consistency to it from his teenage years all the way until his death. Though he did have a couple of mystical experiences, especially towards the end of his life. So, yeah, amazing guy. <laughs> yeah. just, it never ceases to to uh, fascinate me. When you say stoicism, what, what you know, most people hear that and they just think, well, you know, you you don't cry when it hurts or something. But <laughs> oh, it's right. a little more than that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. No, he was full blown. Uh, he he loved Zeno. He loved Cleanthes. He he loved Cicero. He he loved Epictetus. I mean, the great Stoic philosophers. So the Stoics, 
in the ancient world believed that there was a, an eternal cosmopolis, right? What Augustine would call the city of God. But this was the city of God and man in which there was this language, the logos, uh, that we use to talk not only to God, the natural law, but to one another. And, and it was a fairly coherent system. It, it's really, it's about 300 years older than Christianity. And Christianity takes a lot from, or at least it parallels. I, I won't say it takes from Stoicism, but it parallels a lot in Stoicism. And the very fact that we, you know, that John took the, the Logos as this concept for what Christ is, is pretty revealing that Stoicism at least played some kind of role in early Christianity. But yeah, the Stoics, uh, they attempted not to show too much emotion, but not, not because they didn't, they were afraid of showing that they cried. They tried not to show emotion because it was their way of saying to God, thank you. It was their gratitude. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't get too excited about the highs and we don't get too <laughs> down about the lows. Everything is God's will. And that's why you don't show emotion. I, I think one of the favorite uh, pieces that we reprinted for me was the Inhumane Businessman. And the subtitles alone were so helpful. The triumph of technology <laughs> yeah. and a BS in packaging. <laughs> and and he's talking That's about a clever. degree there, not an expletive. Um, right. You know, and still pretty clever. Very <laughs> clever, very clever. Um, I can remember, it, especially in the years that I was working much more heavily in the music industry, how important what you looked like was, except sure. in jazz. You know, it actually helped in jazz if you were a little bit fat, a little bit ugly. You know. <laughs> Which is probably why I was successful as a jazz singer. But in any case. Um, Not true, by the way. The, uh, <laughs> Not true. We but, used to say the same thing about radio. Yeah. <laughs> I have a face he for has, radio. He has, a, he has a face for radio. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but I love, he, he talks about, you know, this kind of veneer that washes over the face of all our pursuits in business, education, politics, and everything um, that keeps us from. Uh, uh, the recognizing the first principle kind of soul and dignity of the human person. Um, but I wonder, you know, what his solution is, because even in that essay, he talks about how, you know, he doesn't predict that he's going to be seeing businessmen reading Plato anytime soon. Um, so for those of us uh, who are reading Plato or others, you know, where What's the viable solution that he's suggesting yeah. in all of this? Yeah, How do we bridge that? I, I agree. That's a very hard thing with Kirk. Uh, and, and he does have a kind of almost dreamy air mm. about certain things. And, and one of the things that he really believed, and something that he tried to practice as well, is that the current generation, meaning those of us talking right now, were probably lost. But we can affect very strongly the children. Mm. And he thought that really this is where you have to put so much emphasis on education. And from the very beginning, we should be teaching the great ideas in education. And it's never too early to start teaching norms and morals uh, and mores, these kinds of things. So he really did have a very long run view. And yet he also believed that probably uh, Western civilization used to talk about we're in a, a twilight or a decline. Mm. He thought that we were probably in a, a long period of darkness 
right now. Mm. Um, now he was always, he always, and Annette reminds me, his widow reminds me of this every time I speak. She's Brad, you're too dour. You're too dour. And, and it's true. <laughs> Kirk would give this you know, 50 minute, unbelievably dour talk. And then at the end he would say, but there's always hope. <laughs> and, and I think he meant it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Annette's right. I shouldn't just end on the dour part, but he does seem to think there's always hope. You know, his favorite, his favorite saying, which again, I never met him, but I've heard this from so many people who knew him. His favorite saying was, you can't change the world, but you can brighten the corner where you find yourself. Mm. And so he really thought that history, well, I, I, he did believe academically that history was made by the saints, but he also believed that each one of us made history by doing things that no one would notice except maybe the person who had just received something good we had done. Mm -hmm. So things that are done in the quiet of a neighborhood are actually changing the world mm. as opposed to whatever diplomacy is going on in Iceland at the moment at Reyk the Reykjavik summit. Right? Right. That, that's great. But what really matters are these, these timeless, endless moments of charity that we do for one another. That's, that's what really matters. So Kirk had great faith that education could reform itself. And he also had great faith in the human person being decent to one another. Mm. So Liz, if you don't mind, I have to, this is being a little, a little irreverent here uh, for a moment. Kirk never cussed. It was mm. just, he, he just didn't. Uh, and he did not have a body sense of humor at all, mm -hmm. but he loved things like what you just said. He loved putting like a BS in marketing, right? That was, that was the extent <laughs> of his crudity. Uh, but one of my favorite moments in 1971, he was asked to give a, an address, which he did. He gave an address to the Association of College Presidents, so basically small colleges, and the presidents were there. And I think it was in Arizona, if I remember right. And he got up and he told everyone, he said, I just want you to know that after the 1960s, it would be better to have all of your students stay in a house of ill repute in New Orleans than it would be to stay in most of the dormitories at your colleges. <laughs> students, students would actually appreciate a different side of life and suffer the consequences. <laughs> so anyway, I just that's I, I, that cracked me up when you said. I, I hope you don't mind me telling you that. No, but I, just, great. I just thought that was very funny. That is funny. So. It, it seems that the theme. I mean, that's this kind of come around full circle here. It, you know, the theme has come back to again a kind of gratitude that's, that's necessary. And there's a sort of Chestertonian element of, of Kirk's life, not just in the sort of, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of the eccentric dressing and the capes and the sword stick and stuff, but that, that essential notion that Chesterton had of, of having to love a place and to be grateful for it in order to affect any kind of real reform. Uh, you know, maybe you could say a little bit about about his own his own interesting love of of this country and perhaps his little corner of Michigan. He did, uh, Dave. You put that very well. He he absolutely believed in place, and most of his short stories take place within Michigan mm -hmm. and usually within Macosta County. And in, in that sense, he shares a lot in common with people like Willa Cather uh, in the way that yeah you know, they're approaching. So with Willie Cather, of course, we're always in this one town in Nebraska, right. in Red Cloud, Nebraska, whether it's Hanover or whatever it may be called. Kirk did a very similar thing with his stories in Michigan. And yet he also believed that there could be darknesses to places as well. So here he is writing horror fiction in Michigan. 
and asked about that, he actually said that he thought because of the removal of American Indians, he was deeply sympathetic to the American Indian. Uh, I mean, to the point where he thought the FBI was after him in uh, during the Pine Ridge, uh, mm. what was going on in Pine Ridge in 1973. Kirk was helping smuggle food into the Indians who were fighting the FBI there. Um, he was deeply sympathetic to this. And so he thought that Michigan, because whites had come in and displaced the Indian and because they had taken down the forests, that there was a kind of uh, a lingering sin in the soil. Mm. And part of what he attempted to do and part of what he believed with his charity was that these acts of kindness, these acts of charity that we do in normal life, these were ways to overcome the evil that was within the soil. So you, you can have good habits on a soil, but you can have the bad habits as well. And I think that's one thing because we we tend to think of Kirk as a conservative, which he was. We miss that that what we might call social justice aspect to yeah. Kirk, mm-hmm. uh, which he, he, you know, again, whether it was questions of race and African-Americans or American Indians or the poor, he had deep, deep sympathy. I mean, his, his wife, or this is Liz going back to an earlier question. Um, he and his wife used to drive around Grand Rapids and pick up homeless people mm-hmm. and they would go to crisis pregnancy centers and they would take women home with them. And I mean, they just, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, they never, they never stopped. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just never stopped. This was a huge part of their life. And, you know, at one point, and I'm not going to get this exactly right, but at one point, I think they had something like 17 Cambodians and 20 Ethiopians living with them in Macosta. Uh, you know, and, and they, they didn't think about things like skin color. They didn't think about race. These were people who needed help. Yes. And they took care of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that discussion closed. Yeah. Right. right. This is what you do. And uh, you know, the, the girls there, they had four daughters, uh, Russell and Annette did. And the girls used to joke that when they'd wake up for breakfast, they would never know who was going to be there <laughs> you know, because it could be anybody, wow. um, you know, anybody who needed help. But I mean, the Kirks were, were literally taking care of upwards of 40 people at a time. Wow. Yeah. And that's where their money went. Mm-hmm. I, that's, uh, you know, Kirk made millions of dollars on his books. But they spent almost all of it in charity. So that's a that's a great point to end here, Brad. We we have show notes, of course, so that our listeners can learn more about. Them. I mean, I I'd like to add one thing. Uh, your your biography of Kirk is just amazing, and we'll we'll definitely put a link to that in. But what other places Thanks, would Dave. you say to go to to learn about uh, Kirk? And maybe what are the what are the first things you should read when you start reading Russell Kirk? Well, I, if you can find it, it's hard to find now, uh, but you can get it on ABE Books and at eBay. Uh, you can find his collection of short stories called Ancestral Shadows. Oh, yes. And that, that I think, is it's not definitive, and it's unfortunate. I think they left out one short story. Uh, if they had put in one extra short story, they would have had the complete short fiction of Russell Kirk in that. I have no idea what the publisher was thinking, but regardless, it's still the best collection. I think it came out in maybe oh, 20 years ago now. Yeah, something Probably like that, 2003. 2004. Yeah, and, um, but you can still find them online, and they're, they're hardcover, and they're definitely worth getting. So I love Kirk's short fiction for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's, it's good fiction. It's really good fiction. But it also contains most of his really good ideas as well. So if you want to understand what he thought about this issue or that, it's kind of hidden within the fiction. 
And so that's a, a great place to start. For his books, I think his best book, which he wrote in uh, over just a, about a three-week period, and he was very angry, uh, he wrote a book called A Program for Conservatives, which was in 1954, and it was meant to answer the critics of the conservative mind. And uh, it, it, people, they criticize the conservative mind by saying, you've given us 29 little biographies in the conservative mind, but you haven't told us what we should do about school lunches or about how many missiles we should have against the Soviets. And Kirk laughed and he said, okay, I'll give you my program for conservatives. And this is even before he's Christian. Um, He says, the only thing that matters is that you love one another. That's it. (laughs) This is my great secret to life. Love one another. (laughs) And it is such a beautiful book. Yeah, he's angry when he's writing it, but it's a it's a it's not a rage, Liz. It's that justice. Mm -hmm, It's like, mm -hmm. okay, here's what I'm going to do with my anger. Mm -hmm. And it's so poetic and so Mm -hmm. beautiful. And he just he takes on about 10 different problems in society. And he shows how through love, actually treating one another with respect, we could overcome these problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's almost when when a friend of one of my closest friends read this, he gave it back to me and he said, Brad. Kirk's nothing but a hippie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he, there's something to that. He's a, he's a hippie 20 years too, too early. Uh, but there is something to that. So I, I would start with Ancestral Shadows, and then I would go to Program for Conservatives, which I think is now published as Prospects for Conservatives. Mm, all right. But, yeah, same, same book. Brad, this has been a delight. Oh, it's fantastic, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. This has been wonderful. And I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things, a partnership between Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. I'm Dave Devil, and as always with Liz Kelly, we hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things, to become a patron of the show and continue the conversation 